Today's episode of Tampering is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think NBA tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download GameTime in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score some last-minute tickets. Welcome to Tampering with Sam Amick and Joe Varden. This beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. To be able to bring people together. What do, baby? Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is not talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Was right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. <laughs> awkward to even talk about it. I can't even mention teams anymore. Actually, what I like to play with Kevin Durant. The trial you want with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. Everybody went off like I have tampered with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tampering, the Athletics NBA Insider Podcast. Uh, I'm Joe Varden and my partner is always Sam Amick. Sam, do you have an Iron Eagle impression? <laughs> I Well, A, no, and I'm sorry, Ian, I, I'm going to let you down there, buddy. B, all I can get, you know, I can't get out of my head is what the listeners might not ever hear, but Jade is going to have to edit in is, is our fine producer, Jade's. Uh, throaty, you know, scratchy Kathleen Turner voice to to steal uh, Ian's uh, Ian's <laughs> reference as we were trying to get on the air here. So I'm letting you down there because all I have is Jade in my ears. I'm sick right now. This is not my normal voice. Yeah, and so without uh, further ado, in case you haven't figured it out, our guest today is Ian Eagle. He is the play-by-play man for the Yes Network for the Nets. He does NBA games on TNT. He he may still be in Chicago having done the Lions-Bears game. Ian, what you got? Ah, not in Chicago. No, 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 no. <laughs> get in, get out. That's the goal. That's the objective. <laughs> you told me that you're doing Nets and Jazz, which is tomorrow night in Utah. So maybe that maybe you're headed there. Oh, you're you're being very rational. That that sounds <laughs> like a logical explanation. Like stay in Chicago, fly to Salt Lake. Don't go crazy going coast to coast. No, I I came home, flying to Salt Lake, coming back, going to Cleveland for Browns and Steelers, and then heading to Baltimore for. Ravens and Texans. So fun-filled week and just trying to compartmentalize all the preparation. That's that's part of the deal. Joe's also sounding very stockery, uh, Ian. I don't know why he's got to know where you are. Good Lord. Maybe he doesn't want the listeners to know. I'm very excited. <laughs> the restraining order ended only 12 days ago. For you to pick it right back up. That's odd. <laughs> well, I'm fired up. I mean, huge Iron Eagle fan for one. Uh, just true professional, every sense of the word. Two, as he as he just told you, he's coming to Cleveland Thursday for the huge, Sam, huge AFC North showdown between the Cleveland football Browns and the Pittsburgh suck Steelers. Welcome to the NFL pod at the yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let me hold, let me write these down. This would be great for my open. On Thursday night. Perfect, <laughs> yeah, that, perfect that's way right. to lead into it. No, thank you for joining us. Um, we have a lot to get to. There's a you have a, obviously a really cool life story with all the things that you've gotten to do in your job, and now of course your son Noah is the play-by play man for the Clippers. So we've got kind of a Jack Buck, Joe Buck thing going on there. Um, I, I wanted to start, though, just with your, I guess, day job uh, in, in Brooklyn with a team that made as big of a splash as any uh, or almost as any in the NBA this summer with uh, bringing Kyrie and, and KD in. And just, um, I mean, you've been around the team now for a few weeks. And um, what are some things that you've seen? How do you think everybody's getting along out there? Yeah, so far so good in terms of chemistry. I think when you make the kind of moves that the Nets made during the offseason, the process is going to come in stages. There's the first reaction, that initial wave 
around the NBA, which was a lot of surprise. And most people just didn't think the Nets could pull it off. But those who had read the tea leaves, those who had followed along with Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson and direction of the franchise, I don't think they were shocked. And people within the organization were not as shocked. Of course, when the moment happens and it hits and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant inform the team that uh, they want to be a part of this and new faces, DeAndre Jordan being one of them, there there is a big shift in the way that you're viewed around the league. So that first stage was just everyone processing it. Then there's the bonding stage of guys getting to know one another, working out together out in L.A., and then what the carryover would be into training camp preseason. And here's the thing. This is interesting from team to team, and I think it's really now, guys, based on the individuals. There was no press conference. It's not as if they had this huge unveiling and all the questions were answered. My sense of it is that both KD and Kyrie didn't want it. They didn't want to have to explain anything. They didn't feel it was necessary. They made their decision and they would talk to the media when training camp hit. And that's exactly what happened. So the questions were still out there and there was a lot of speculation as to how it happened, why it happened, the reasons behind it. And then some of those answers began to flow in uh, once training camp began. So now here we are, uh, mid-November, and you've seen the team. You've seen uh, some of the developments on the court. I think Kenny Atkinson would be the first to tell you that they're sorting through some things, trying to figure out combinations that work together and what the team is good at, what the team needs to work on. The same exact thing that every team goes through, the difference is, They just didn't have a whole lot of time to see this thing through. And now they're beginning to understand what the identity is going to be and and what makes this team tick. So I and uh, Joe mentioned this at the top, but I I love the synergy uh, or the The Steelers suck. Yes, that too. We're not going back there, Joe. We're not going back there. (laughs) Stop getting triggered. I know the the symmetry rather of you and your son, uh, you know, and and Clippers Nets to me and the two stories of these two franchises and the stars that they picked up. This summer, it's basically, you know, and it's an overly simplistic look at it. But, I mean, it's, you know, a very, very similar storyline. We have franchises with, you know, who have have been uh, the bottom of the barrel for a long time in the NBA. The Nets certainly, and you've been there for a long time, you've seen more success in that job than, uh, you know, than the great Ralph Lawler has as the Clippers man for all these years. But um, from a cultural standpoint, what has it been like for you to see them figure things out, to see them become a functional, high-level organization that presents itself in the kind of way that attracts a Kyrie Irving and a Kevin Durant? Um, that, that you know, Because you've seen the other side, that has to be a little bit of a culture shock. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. When, when Sean Marks took over, uh, he certainly had a clear vision of what he wanted. But having been around the Nets for as long as I have, it's 26 years now, I've heard some similar theories and rhetoric, but I never really saw it come into play. Rod Thorne did a fantastic job. He came in uh, with certain objectives in mind. He made uh, one of the biggest moves in Nets history and maybe even NBA history with Jason Kidd changing the way the franchise was viewed. But there still was that feeling of being the little brother in the New York media market. They, they couldn't get a, around that. And I think this also runs congruent with, with the Clippers. It's just how right. it is. Right. You, you, you can't. You can't fight City Hall. The Lakers are the team in L.A. The Knicks are the team in New York. What I think has happened is the, the two teams have realized, stop trying to compete with that goal in mind. And they went macro. They went bigger picture, which is go compete for a championship. If you are not thinking about the Knicks and you're not thinking about the Lakers and you're just thinking about what's going to be best for your team, then I feel as if the picture becomes clearer. And and there's no doubt. And I I can't speak specifically to the Clippers, but I'll, I'll certainly use conjecture and say that it was similar to the Nets at different times in the organization's history, there's an inferiority complex. You just, and you operate from that point of view and that motivates you in a way that wasn't productive and efficient. 
I think when the Nets finally put an end to that and just looked at themselves as their own entity and do whatever is best to make the team better, convince players around the NBA, agents around the NBA, media around the NBA, that this team is doing things the right way, not cutting corners and not looking for, for shortcuts, then good things will start to happen. That's what happened over the last four years. There's no doubt about it. For the Clippers, probably a, a similar mentality, an owner that was highly motivated, highly aggressive in trying to flip the script. And it's not easy. <laughs> Look, you guys have been around this for a long time. Uh, you hear the same things that I hear from new GMs, new team presidents, new owners. They say the right things sometimes on the day of the press conference, and then their actions don't match it. I can tell you definitively all of the actions have matched exactly what Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson set out to do. So how much time – I mean because right right now – KD's not around. Um, I mean, he, actually, he is around. He's just not playing. He's around the team quite a bit. Uh, but Ky- Kyrie's out there, and he is the one. He is one of the players with whom I have the the most frame of reference. Uh, you know, I covered his entire uh, tenure with LeBron in Cleveland, so sort of the height of of his career to date. Um, how much time have you gotten to spend around Kyrie, and and what are some of your initial impressions? And again, I I know who you work for, so you got to be careful, but um, I mean, he's a he's a different you know he's he's a different cat. Like, what are what are some of the things that that um, that you've you've noticed? Yeah, what I've noticed with him, just in my interactions, and it hasn't been a whole lot since he became a net. I just always found him to be when when you have him one on one, really thoughtful, really interested in what you have to say, very curious as well, asks a lot of questions, not just looking down at his phone and locked in on whatever's going on in his life. If you're engaged in a conversation with him, he wants to know things. He has legitimate interests in whatever that that topic was. Uh, I I think what happens oftentimes, certainly now more than ever, uh, reputations can build and they can carry over from place to place to place. And while I get it, that that's part of what we do in covering athletes and oftentimes trying to dig a little deeper. Sometimes you do have to judge it based on your experience and not just discard whatever's happened. That's part of it. That's part of the whole dossier. But for me, and not to say that I said, Oh, we're, we're just starting from scratch. I I've used what I've known and what I've heard. But I'm also going to form my own opinion on what I see, what I observe. And so far with Kyrie, he's been great with his teammates. He's demanding. Uh, I think all great players are demanding. He's been superb on the court, just gifted. From a play-by-play man's point of view, you can't ask for much more. Every single night, there is a major highlight that he's a part of. And there's a chance you're going to see something that you haven't seen before. He is a special, unique talent. I think the personal stuff is going to evolve over the course of the year. What's expected of him, the leadership tag that I know in Boston was was put out there, and, and he was one of the guys that embraced it. He wanted to be known as the leader. He saw that as the next phase of his career. And while things didn't necessarily go as planned, that doesn't mean that it's over for him. It means that it's a new chapter and it's a new Mm -hmm. bunch of players and it's a new coaching staff that he's dealing with and it's a new attitude and a new culture. So uh, the early grades are very high on uh, him interacting with his teammates, him taking on the burden Mm -hmm. on the court. And I think off the court maybe realizing that the Nets are not expecting him to lead by himself, that this is supposed to be a group effort. The coaches view it that way. And I don't think he's facing the same kinds of questions that he may have been facing in Boston over the last couple of years. So uh, I spent some time and, and I didn't come say hello, which is bad on bad on me. But I was there last weekend. Um, they played at home Friday against the Rockets and then they were home again against the Pelicans. And I sp- 
talked to Kyrie Friday night. I wrote about it. And the, the crux of the story was basically that he had learned from his time in Boston that he didn't have to spend so much time talking about being the guy and being the leader and and he's just kind of going out and playing and I mean you you know you've seen him score 50 already and and 39 and and he is playing great I it's funny um and we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before um I I have seen him I saw him once he did did this thing where the Cavs lost the game um instead of coming into the locker room and answering the questions he stayed out on the court uh, where there's plenty of fans who are still there watching and took extra shots. He could have done that upstairs, but he, he did it out, out on the court. And then he comes back off, and everybody's waiting for him, and somebody else asks him a question about his shooting because it was clear that he, he felt he needed to get a work to get his work in. And he said to this guy, well, pff, you know, you just watch. I'm the one who plays. Um, and so, like, Kyrie can be that guy, but to me, he has never been that guy. Um, he and I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm, I guess I just count myself lucky um, to to be able to, to to get a chance to talk to him and, and have him talk without some of the things that that gets in his way. I, I mean, for his sake, I hope he does continue what we've seen him, just the way he's carried himself so far in Brooklyn. And I think, and one of the things he said is. When KD comes, he thinks that he'll have um, even less burden. It'll be interesting to see if they can actually coexist on the floor, if if KD is as much of a willing passer as LeBron was um, when the KD – or when the LeBron-Kyrie thing worked so well. I, w- I wanted to ask you um, – Yes, you know you work for the for the Nets, um, but the other team in town, you mentioned them too, the Knicks. Um, they actually got pounded by the Cavs last night, and it was so bad that uh, their leadership had to come out for a press conference. Um, it, <laughs> what what could change there? What could change for the Knicks in the short term to to begin to kind of move them in a different direction? Yeah, it's. Uh... It's not a good situation right now, and and it hasn't been for quite some time. And I really, I take no personal satisfaction in seeing it. To me, it would be a, a much better setup if both the Nets and Knicks were good at the same time. It would create more chatter. It would create more banter, and it would be better for the city of New York. So there's plenty of banter, Ian. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe more basketball-related banter <laughs> as opposed to uh, the stuff that's going on right now. I, I think you know, maybe uh, we just understand that uh, this is going to take a while, and it may happen with, with different leadership. Uh, their ownership, James Dolan, uh, he's not the most popular figure in the New York area. He's not the most popular figure necessarily in general NBA circles. I... I think in his eyes, he's tried. He's tried. He hired Phil Jackson. That was a huge PR move on his part that would take him off the griddle. Didn't go well. Uh, Phil wasn't interested in necessarily putting in the time necessary to do this thing right. And he was going to get outworked by the likes of Danny Ainge and many, many others in the NBA that were so committed and were killers in their job. Killers. They want to win. And that's how they view life. Phil was certainly at a different stage in his life. They transitioned to a, a new group up top and they've said a lot of things and they put out flyers that the Knicks were going to be back and were going to be uh, credible again and relevant again. And it didn't go as planned. So when you make large statements, whether you make them yourself publicly or you serve them up through some other vessel via the media, people are going to actually call you on the carpet. And the checks and balances in in the world we live in now are very strong. And you can't just get by with uh, saying some things but not actually doing them. And the Knicks, instead of maybe just accepting or being transparent and, and saying right. it, coming out and saying that, hey, things didn't go as planned. But this is what we're going to do. This is what we're comfortable with. This is how it's going to go. Uh, they they tried to double back and say, no, this was always part of it. You guys are misreading it. Uh, it's it's fairly no, it's, it's fairly bad. ugly right now. I think 
I mean, I for me, you you hit it on the head. The transparency that doesn't exist. I think what drove me nuts about the way uh, yesterday was handled was that you know the guy missing from that press conference was Dolan himself, and the idea that he could put his group. I mean, say what you will about the bad summer they had, and it was bad. But the idea that he decided on November tenth that it was bad is absurd, and the idea that he thought this team was going to compete at a high level is ridiculous and shows, you know, yet again that he's just simply not paying attention to how this league works. And it sounds like, I mean, listen, Steve Mills, Scott Perry, that crew, David Fisdale, they're going to be fine in in the big picture here. I felt bad for him yesterday because, you know, their owner should have been out there. And this is also an owner who doesn't make himself available to the media, uh, you know, uh, breaks every rule in the book when it comes to media access and, and encourages you know, his PR staff to leave certain people out of certain meetings. We know the headlines there. Um, but now all of a sudden, you know, you're going to call your, your own crew out on the carpet and make them go answer questions um, in, in real time fashion. I mean, that was pretty, pretty surreal. surreal. Yeah. And it's an altered reality. Uh, you just nailed it with with the final terminology. It, it's just not the way that everybody else does business. And hey, that's fine. There, there are teams that do things differently. The New England Patriots do things differently in the NFL. But here's the bottom line. They produce year after year after year. And because of the results, media members, fans, uh, followers of the NFL have maybe had to adjust based on the fact that they're doing it a different way. And you have to accept that as, as part of the deal. The Knicks are doing it a different way, but the results have been poor. And that way is not working. And the accountability has not been there. I could tell you just from the Nets perspective, because that's my frame of reference, when Mikhail Prokhorov made the change from Billy King to Sean Marks, I think Sean basically laid it on the line and said, if you want me to take this job, I need to know that I'm in charge. And that's not to say I'm not going to run things by you. It's not to say I'm not going to tell you what we're doing. It's not going to be secretive. But I need to know that in the moment, I can make the final call on things because you believe in my vision. And Mikhail Prokhorov accepted that. And that was the best thing that he ever did. Uh, He was not involved in every aspect of the team. He was not involved in every move. There was autonomy and a trust that uh, maybe James Dolan viewed it that way and he looks at uh, the smoke clearing and saying, well, what, what do I have here? This is not what I signed up for. But then come out and say that. Come out and explain your point of view. The times that he has come out and shared his thoughts with the media, it, it hasn't gone well. It's been under controlled settings, and uh, it, he has not come across well in those right. In those, Yeah, settings. I mean, that, that's the other side of the coin, right, is that his, the optics of him being the spokesman never go well at all. I am great stuff. Give us a quick second here before we get to the next thing. Got to talk to the listeners out there. You ever wonder how to get the hottest new sneakers, the ones that barely hit the shelves? The answer is StockX, a revolutionary new marketplace for buying and selling 100% authentic sneakers, streetwear, watches, and handbags. Joe, I know you're very fired up to talk about this crew and what they're doing. What's your StockX experience, buddy? There's a pair of Jordans, uh, the Justin Timberlake brand. It's uh, it's actually it's called uh, Man of the Woods, um, and and uh, they're beige. They have black trim, and they're they're absolute fire. You can't get them anywhere. If you look at my uh, at the picture on my Twitter feed, uh, you'll see them on my feet. Um, my wife found them through StockX, and uh, they found their way to me for Christmas. And uh, anywhere I go, um, when I wear those things, like I, I wore them around New York recently. Uh, people will stop me and just say, "Wow, look at those!" And you know, again, I mean. Without StockX, I just wouldn't have them. I mean, you know, and there are millions of stories like this. People are going to the website, looking at the shoes that you can't find anywhere else, uh, whether it's the Justin Timberlake Jordans on down the line. And soon enough, they're on their feet. Listen, with StockX, there's no hassle. StockX handles the exchange of every transaction, so you never have to worry about legit buyers or sellers. StockX has you covered. They also allow you to buy and sell pre-owned, excellent condition, luxury handbags, watches from brands like Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, Rolex, Omega, Tudor, and much, much more. You want in on all the hype? Check out StockX.com backslash bball for a surprise offer that won't be around long. That's stockx.com backslash bball. 
Check it out today. The uh, the story a couple weeks ago, Ian, that ESPN had about the Nets, just kind of the deep dive on the integration of Kyrie and Kevin. Now, the headlines, obviously, they pulled one interesting part out about Kyrie and <clears throat> excuse me, and his personality and the way he was fitting in. But I want to throw it at you from more of a macro point of view, because the other thing that it got into was the fascinating blend of what Kenny Atkinson and Sean Marks and this group built last year when going 42 and 40 was, you know, on the high end of what anybody expected. And by all accounts, a big thumbs up. And then let's let's bring in these superstars. But oh, by the way, one of them's not available all year. And so, you know, I don't know what the reasonable expectation should be in terms of, uh, you know, the, the impact of having Kyrie on this squad. But as we sit here, nine games in is a decent sample size. And so probably safe to assume they're not thrilled with being four and five. They wish they were a little bit more ahead of the curve. But how is that process going? You know, and, and what do you think big picture is fair to expect out of this group this season? Yeah, it, it's it's the big question with the organization because people fell in love with the team last year for a reason. They played really hard. They exceeded expectations. You saw development. Uh, D'Angelo Russell had uh, the best season that he could possibly had had envisioned for himself in a contract year. So he benefited. The Nets benefited because the the whole idea of this team being able to improve individual players and get them to maximum ability was reconfirmed. The improvement of Joe Harris, the improvement of Karis LeVert, the improvement of Jared Allen, the improvement of Spencer Dinwiddie, that was no longer just a a nice little feature story. That was real. You, You had actual results to show it, a playoff appearance. Now, you know, I, I understand when, People feel a kinship with the team. That's the goal. That's what you hope for. You hope you connect with your audience. And that's what the Nets did last year. But it shouldn't take away from what the ultimate goal is, and that is to try to get the best players available to bring this team to another level. So uh, the thought or idea that some people floated out there that, hey, you should have just stood pat. You know, keep going with D'Angelo Russell. Keep going with what you're building. That's a nice theory, but that's to me that's that's not realistic. Right. The, the reality. Well, it's a star is, league. Yeah, it, you got to build towards something, and that's what the Nets were doing. That that was with a purpose in mind. So acquiring Kyrie, acquiring KD, bringing in DeAndre Jordan, making the deal for Torian Prince. Uh, that was all part of a plan. Maybe they didn't have the exact individuals lined up when they viewed it on a big board in their in their draft room and their uh, their future future roster room but this is what they wanted and they got it with that comes pressure with that comes additional expectation and i thought jackie mcmullen did a great job in in depicting what exactly is happening of course uh, the one headline took over and dominated all the conversation, but it did give you real insight into how they got to this point. I, I believe they are still under the same premise that they bring in players, they make those players better. They believe that Torian Prince is going to get better. They believe there's still improvement for Karis Levert, and that's the next question that that the team is facing. Are they getting enough from him? Are they seeing that? the kind of improvement that that they require. And then the questions are going to come defensively, and rightfully so. Uh, they just have not shown any consistency on that end of the floor, and uh, they're, they're going to have to uh, get a lot better if they're going to be the team that they think they can be, even without KD. But the expectations right. that, that you mentioned, they're still there. Uh, they, they expect to be a playoff team. They expect to be dangerous if they get to the playoffs, and – they expect the chemistry to to develop as they still figure out which pieces work together and what this rotation is going to look like. I don't know what you guys want. I mean, if the playoffs started today, they'd be in it. They're eight. <laughs> there you go. I the stand hell? corrected, man. I'm sorry. Great year for the Jeez. Nets. Throw Great year for <laughs> yeah. the Nets, man. Come on. On the back of Kyrie. Uh, all right. So, Ian, you, you've been with the Nets since like 1960, I think. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, well, 61. 61. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you've been, you've been in this job. Like, I, I mean, it goes all the way back, I think almost to their finals year, if not their finals year. 
um, that back that far. And and I so I have a trap question for you. This is absolutely a trap. Who is your favorite all time net? Oh, yeah, tough one. Uh, Jason Kidd would have to be the guy just because there was this job pre kid and this job post kid, and the two jobs were very different. Nobody cared <laughs> for <laughs> for what I was doing. I, I was working with Bill Raftery for many years, and oh, I wow. thought we were spinning yarns of gold out there, and there was little to no reaction. It was a tree falling in the forest. And then Jason Kidd came on board after the deal with Phoenix. And then all of a sudden, people were approaching me and coming up to me, Matt, you and Bill are, are fun together. I'm thinking, yeah, we, we've been doing it for eight years. <laughs> like you were new kids on the block. Yeah, yeah, yeah Bill was yeah. the new kid. Oh, the kids. <laughs> yes. like these these were sayings that i had heard over and over again but they started to resonate at that point onions you know all all of these different calls that that he had and people would start coming up to him and to me and and screaming random words the lingerie lingerie <laughs> you know, airports people would say the most bizarre things and there were things that were coming out of Bill's mouth, but nobody seemed to care prior to that. So Jason Kidd would would qualify as such. I really enjoyed calling Vince Carter's games. It, it just came at a time where uh, he had something to prove. Uh, he was angry over how things went in Toronto and how all of that was portrayed. And he was a man on a mission and to have a front row seat during that stretch of time where he still had full Vince Carter athleticism, but had added to its game as all around skills had really started to develop. It was just a whole lot of fun calling his games and just getting to know him. Class guy, uh, one of the, the nicer human beings I've, I've covered in, in 26 years of doing this job. So when I talk to Richard Jefferson later today, I can tell him clearly that he has just not lived up to it either as a player, broadcast partner. Talk about a trap question. Oh, yeah. You always set that up? You always set that up, Ian? Yeah, can we do a a mulligan? (laughs) The most unique and complicated player I've ever been around. Deep thinker. Man, yes. I, I just forget about never. Kyrie. Was RJ was RJ Moody? Can we talk about RJ's moodiness? <laughs> yes. Total the diva. Thing, the funny thing with RJ was he was so tough for people to read when he came into the league. He was so sarcastic and so blunt that people were unnerved by him. I wasn't. I, I found him really entertaining, and I, I certainly didn't take any of his stuff personally. Uh, but he would just he would just say whatever was on his mind, getting on the bus, getting on the plane, uh, shoot arounds, layup lines. It didn't matter. He, he was so loose when when it came to that stuff. And I just don't know if people were were accustomed to it. One of the one of the favorite uh, stories that I remember in regards to R.J. was uh, Zoran Planinich was on the team. Do you remember Zoran at all? Absolutely not. Okay. Well, <laughs> Sam, he's older than me, so he probably remembers. You're <laughs> defending everybody's age today, Joe. Thanks yeah. He, he knew no English whatsoever. None. He had zero English. And Richard decided he was going to help him. And he said to, to Zoran, look, you got to watch American TV. Watch the Chappelle show. That'll really get you up to speed on what's happening with, with America. So... Zoran Planinich takes Richard up on it, watches the Chappelle show, gets on the bus. I'm the only guy on the bus waiting for everybody to to get on. And Zoran comes on the bus and I give it a, hey, Zoran, how you doing? And he turns to me and goes, I am Rick James, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) I I later found out it was Richard that was uh, that was instructing him that. Dave Chappelle would be the best way he, he could learn American culture. Well, uh, I mean, Richard certainly – he saved um, – he saved – if you want to call the four years here with LeBron a dynasty, fine. Uh, certainly in the Eastern Conference it was. But Richard saved it basically by coming here and teaching 
Kyrie and Kevin and some of the other younger guys and even LeBron too to relax and uh, and so that, that's kind of his last thing. You know, th- it's funny. Um, and this is going to get into something. I, it's just this is all goofball stuff, but I wanted to ask uh, ask you about it or see if you were aware of this. Um, but the other night uh, at the Nets Pelicans game, I guess it was a week ago now. I was looking around and doing the math, and I was thinking back to those Cleveland days. And on the Nets, you had Kyrie and Joe Harris, assistant coach Brett Brielmeyer, um, Kyrie's security guy Jason Daniel used to work for the Cavs. Um, Trajan Langdon used to work for the Nets and the Cavs. Now he's working for uh, David Griffin in Cleveland, who was also or in New Orleans, who was also there at the game. And of course, of course, Richard was there doing the game with you. But then I also r- realized, and of course I knew this, that the Brooklyn public address announcer, his name is Olivier Cedra, and I don't know how much you've gotten to know him over the last couple of years. I have, I have. But, he, to know him well. but he, he was the Cavs PA guy for a number of years here in Cleveland throughout Kyrie's entire tenure here. And I am wondering if they are the first PA guy point guard combination in the history of the NBA to both leave one city and end up in another one together. Ooh, man, I would have to look back. I, I think Fort Wayne, there might've been a, <laughs> no, no, that, that doesn't make sense at all. No, Olivia is terrific and brings a, a perfect amount of energy to his job and passion and cares about it and really does the homework, like actually cares about, uh, the background of these players and trying to find something and find a connector to, to do his job well. And it, it's funny with, with players. I don't know if every player pays attention to it or not, if some care, some don't, but how they come out on starting lineups from the public address announcer, if that, if that can affect their mood, if that can get them going, if that can galvanize them, I have seen a bunch of players bond with PA announcers through the years because it just gives them a certain vibe. And I wouldn't be surprised if Olivier and, and Kyrie have that. Uh, the bigger part of your your question, which is all these different pieces that were a part of the, the Cavaliers that have moved on uh, to other spots in the NBA, players, coaches, and whatever uh, role you want to talk about, security – when you're successful in sports, people pay attention and they want to rub up against it in some way. And even just the, the NFL game that I did this past week with Chicago and Detroit, Matt Patricia, former assistant under Bill Belichick, mm-hmm. and now the head man and trying to navigate his way through this, I'll figure it out as he goes. That's, that's where we're at in sports. If you win and you're a part of something, other teams want to know what's in the secret sauce. And sometimes you don't even know what's in the secret sauce and you're unable to to find it yourself. (laughs) And then other times uh, we've seen people that are successful elsewhere and they just they they have that that know how and they have that wisdom and knowledge. Uh, NBA, there's no doubt about it that that's that's how it works. And there are a lot of guys that have ridden into long careers based on just being a part of something, sometimes in a small role early on in their career. So Ian, I'm, I'm going to hit the rewind button real quick and circle back on something we, we briefly hit on earlier. Um, the father in me thinks it is so cool what is going on with you and your son Noah and the idea that, you know, that uh, on opposite coast with teams with similar stories, here you guys are doing this job. And, and I want to learn a little bit more about that. I mean, for one, I was sitting here in my head trying to connect different dots and then being reminded that you've got, you know, former Nets coach Lawrence Frank now running the Clippers front office. Um, you know, talk to, uh, just tell us more about what that's like for you as a dad. Uh, do you guys talk on a regular basis about just the, you know, your craft and what you do? And I'm, I'm sure there's a, you know, like always with, with dad and son, a mentorship going on there. What has that entire experience been like? Yeah, it, it's been it's been incredible for uh, for me and for my wife Lisa, uh, just to just to turn on that SiriusXM app and listen to him 
oftentimes just the first half. Like at some point, I'm not a young man. I do, I do have to go to sleep and <laughs> I do have other assignments. The best first half driven. call in the league. Is that what yes, you're trying to say? Exactly. Yeah. What I'm saying is that I've not heard a whole lot of third and fourth <laughs> quarter action so far, but the first night was surreal opening night of Clippers Lakers and, uh, my wife and I in our bedroom getting ready to turn this game on and just that realization that this is what he's doing, that this is it. This is this is his job in life. He graduated Syracuse in May. He obviously made a decision at some point in his life, right around 13, that this is what he wanted to pursue. And just that in and of itself, from a, from a father's point of view, that just blows you away that he's interested in what you do and wants to make it a career and make it a way of life. So the role for me has been a dual role. It's been the role of a dad and then the role of being a fellow broadcaster and trying to separate myself, listen to him, help him in any way, but also be smart in how I do it. Uh, There's not a long email after every game uh, in fact, there's, to me, not major conversation after every game. I'm picking and choosing my spots of things that strike me, and it's not something I would ever text during the game. It's more on a larger scale basis of approach, philosophy, and then specific tips here and there when I deem necessary, and when I think it, it's something that could actually help him. So it, it's been, it's been cool, uh, beyond cool. Uh, it's also, uh, been very humbling because all the emotions that I felt when I got this job at a young age doing play by play in the NBA, they've, they've popped back into my stomach on a night to night basis. Sure. As we know, anyone that has kids, whatever you achieve personally in your life, it, it just doesn't even compare to what it is your kids are doing on a day-to-day basis. And I don't care if, if your child's two years old and they were able to do something for the first time, the joy and satisfaction it gives you, or if your son or daughter is 20-something or 30-something or 40-something, uh, the amount of, of joy and, and satisfaction that you get from their achievements far surpass anything that you do in your own life. I think Joe and I can relate. You know, Joe's heard my story about my uh, both of my sons becoming black belts recently, probably a dozen times. You know, I can I can run around singing those praises. Um, you know, it, it's got to be surreal when it comes to him and his career arc. I mean, you mentioned that he ch- basically starts looking at it at 13 years old. You know, for me, I'm just astounded by his ability to have you know the the skill set at this age to do this kind of a job. So when did he first get behind a mic? And I mean, how young are we talking when it comes to him trying to figure out his voice and, and how to attack this thing? Yeah, he, he wasn't one of those kids that started his own podcast or a radio show from his bedroom. He just always had a, a confidence about him and he was wise beyond his years. At 13, he could have a conversation with a 40 year old and not just a hi, how you doing? He could get into deep stuff and keep the conversation going. We would always run into people that that would come up to us and say, how old is your son exactly? Because he just asked me things that uh, I'm not sure my my own friends have ever asked. Right, right. He just had had a way about him. So he gets to Syracuse with this in mind. And I went to Syracuse. My wife went to Syracuse. To me, that was not that was not the easy path. That was the tougher path. Going to Syracuse meant, all right, you're going to the same school that your dad went to, and there are going to be people that have a bunch of questions and will surmise certain things about the situation. And it didn't, it didn't strike him as being difficult or challenging. He blazed his own path. He got involved very early, right away, working on radio. Advice I gave him was, hey, don't limit yourself. Uh, Do everything. Do everything you possibly can because you get four years to accumulate as much experience and meet as many people as possible and get on the air as much as possible because that's the only way to do it. You can't simulate that 
You could go into your shower. You could pretend like you're on the air. There would be good acoustics in there. That that's not, <laughs> but it's it's not real. You you got to do it for real. And he was not intimidated at all. And I just could see the improvement every single year. My wife would ask me because she would she would gauge it. She now has a very good ear, obviously having been around sure. it for so many years. But she would gauge where's he at? Is he doing well? Is is this better than a year ago? And it was. And she's not a, a stage mom by any stretch. She's very much out of the picture when it came to this and let him be. And when he wanted to talk about things, she was there for him. And, and they have a great relationship and talk a lot. So I saw improvement. And by junior year, I heard a polished broadcaster, someone that easily could step in and be a professional. Sirius XM reached out to him and they were interested in using him on on a college show, college football, college basketball, hosted by a college student. Jack Collingsworth, Chris Collingsworth's son, had hosted it called The Student Section. Wow. And he signed on and it was the best thing to ever happen to him because in addition to the things that he was doing on campus, this gave him something outside of it. Right. And it was his show for two hours and nobody else. There was no co-host. It was all him. And sometimes there were no callers. So he really had to learn how to do a show, how to get from point A to point B to point C, how to do it in an interesting and informative manner. And then ironically, when he gets the Clippers job and he's told there's no radio analyst, it's all you, it's solo. I think he felt confident and had conviction that I can do this. I've already done it. It's not going to be that big a deal. Most people, including yours truly, would say, whoa, 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 by yourself. Right. Right. That's it. Just you all the time. Again, that that did not seem overwhelming to him. And he's a roll with the punches kind of guy. So uh, very proud in, in how he's handled it. And not just the job, so cool. itself, but everything around the job. Right. As we know, traveling around the NBA, uh, it's it's a wonderful gig. Uh, it's it's the best job that that you could imagine. But with it comes challenges and trying to parse out your time and figure things out as you go. And, and he's still in that process like anybody would be in that new position. Right. So, so as a kid, um, I practiced in the shower too. It was singing along some of the songs to the bodyguard soundtrack. And, and, and I thought I sounded really good. Um, but then when I got out of the shower, I didn't notice any improvement or nobody around me did. So it didn't quite materialize the way that it did for Noah. So, okay, Jade. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, can, we, can right. we please cut in some uh, I Will Always Love You music I, right I'm sure this will. part of the pod? Yeah. So, so if I and if you go back through your texts, um, you'll see in there that I told you we'd keep you for 15 minutes, maybe 20, maybe 25, and we've got you for 45 so far. Uh, so you've given us 20 minutes more than the absolute maximum I promised, uh, which is awesome. This has been amazing. Before we let you go, um, I, I do want to know if you have a favorite call. Um, since we've been talking Cleveland, 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 you were here for LeBron's game winner uh, in 2018 against the Pacers, which was a ridiculous shot at, at a at a really perilous time. For that Cavs dynasty, I mean, geez, they were on the ropes there, and, and he kind of brought them back from the brink. Uh, but y you tell us, I mean, this long, illustrious career, what is your favorite call any sport? Whew. Well, first thing, because we've gone longer on this interview, this is on you. If there is a call this week of Baker Mayfield throwing a touchdown yeah. to Joe Ingles, <laughs> that's a problem. Like when I start to cross sports, yes. that's, like that's going to be on, on you guys because it's the 15 minutes of prep that I just didn't get in. This week. <laughs> uh, on a personal level, look, there are things with the Nets because you're around the team so often that, that hit home. Uh, you know the people, uh, you travel with them. Uh, there's there's something about doing a local team that is just different. And I've been really fortunate to call national games for 20 plus years and do the NCAA tournament. In fact, in Cleveland, I had one of the great upsets when West Virginia with Mike Ganzi and Kevin Pitznagel mm -hmm. knocked off Chris Paul 
and Wake Forest in the NCAA tournament. John Beeline advanced to the Sweet 16. And that is still one of my favorite games that I've ever called. It just was uh, one of those games that came out of left field. Nobody expected it. It was the last game of the weekend. So everybody was watching. This is before it was on four different channels. It was only on CBS. But every other game it ended. And that was the only game left. And people were were so into it. It was it was one of the more entertaining games that, that I've ever called. You mentioned LeBron at the buzzer. You can't beat playoff buzzer beaters. Yeah, I've done a lot of world feed calls. I'm I'm huge in Venezuela. Like you, I can't <laughs> I can't walk the streets without a mob scene. Uh, but I, I did get to call the finals for a number of years on the world feed and NCAA championship games, the Duke Butler championship game, uh, Haywood shot at the buzzer. If that goes down, I think that's probably the uh, the greatest ah. ending maybe in sports history. Ray Allen shot from the corner to keep that series alive against San Antonio. That was on the world feed. And then NFL-wise, uh, look, you call 20-plus years of NFL, you're going to get some special moments in there. Uh, the Miami Miracle last year against New England was one of the stranger plays that I've seen, one of the more mm-hmm. unlikely plays, but certainly one that people still keep coming up to me and, and mentioning – uh, that they saw it live, still can't believe it. Uh, I, I think there are plays that I haven't called yet that are going to qualify. You know, I really believe that. I, I feel as if uh, every game I go into, uh, something can happen that you just have never seen before. And that's part of my my approach in doing this job is be ready for that. Be ready for the unexpected and also be ready to put the right words to the picture, or if you're doing radio, just the right words in general to document what happened and to convey the excitement of the moment to your audience. That's the job. Great stuff. I listen, you're, you're a legend. We really, really, really genuinely appreciate all the, the time that you gave us. Um, and you know, more importantly, the idea that you went on a podcast that did not include any Syracuse alone is pretty amazing. I mean, no, Dave, Dave McMenamin, Nick Friedel, Mark Medina. We always got to hear about the orange and, you know, and, and so thank you so much. Uh, this has been fantastic. We'll see where the nets go. We'd probably, we'd love to have you, you know, on later in the year and see, you know, how some of these, uh, these viewpoints hold up, but thank you so much, brother. Yeah, my pleasure. Great talking to you guys. Are we going to get uh, PJ Carlissimo on again? The rest <laughs> Is that going to happen or no? Yes. <laughs> He's next. <laughs> Uh, I agree to have you on my podcast. Doc Rivers. It's Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers here. <laughs> See you guys. Thanks, Ian. Hi, Red. Talk to you. As always, thank you so much to the loyal listeners. Uh, For those who have not yet, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your pods, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, man.